Hey everyone, it is the first episode of the Pathological Podcast. I am here with my sister, Kathy. What up, you pumpkin sluts? (laughs) And when you're listening to this podcast, it will be in September, which is pre-October, which, I mean, it's fall. Like, it's fall right now. Starbucks has pumpkin spice, so. Fall has started. Someone on my Facebook page, like, wrote a whole essay about how just because Starbucks released pumpkin spice doesn't mean that fall has started. And I was just like, why do you have to bring this negativity into the world? Like, who who cares? Just not get a pumpkin spice? Right? Like, let people celebrate with the... I mean, yeah, it's a billion degrees in Arizona, but that doesn't mean that we can't pretend that we have boots and scarves and flannel on and sip our pumpkin spice latte. I wore my... You had me a pumpkin spice shirt today. Yes, I wore my It's Pumpkin uh, Spice Season that I got at Target last year. I wear that shirt today. So don't be a Karen and let people enjoy. Fuck being a Karen and drink all the pumpkin spice. And if you just don't like pumpkin spice because you don't like pumpkin spice, that's fine. But you don't have to shame people that do. That's rude. Apple cider. Yeah, apple cider's fine. Like, that's cool. I saw somebody, did you see in the Leaf Rakers group, which just a side note, everyone, if you are not in the Leaf Rakers group, it's basically Starbucks, like secret fall group on Facebook. But I saw somebody that was like, like pumpkin spice is good and all, but I'm here for the salted caramel mochas. And it reminded me when I was back in college, all I ever drank was the salted caramel mocha frappuccinos with extra salt. I was obsessed with that. I'm pretty sure you introduced me to that. And now it's just pumpkin Oh. Which I will like the salted caramel, don't get me wrong, but right. Pumpkin. But something about that pumpkin, like it's just it's like a I don't even know, it's like the perfect the perfect balance or something. Yeah, especially when they put the puree in it and they stop doing the whatever they were doing before. Oh yeah, yeah, they would use like the real pumpkin now, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's legit. Like I, and even the K cup. So this is also my, not to get too far off topic here, but this is my first um, like couple months of having a, like a Keurig type machine. Cause I always just did ground coffee. And I swear to you, the K cups, like the pumpkin spice K cups taste 10 times better than the pumpkin spice ground coffee, even though they should be exactly the same. Like they just taste way better. I think it's more concentrated. Oh, okay, that would make sense because the ground coffee, like, it was hard to explain. It just tasted like bitter with like a hint of cinnamon. But this stuff, like, I could almost drink it black, which, if you know me, I'm like a creamer girl. I love adding creamer in. And this stuff, when I tasted it at, right out of the machine, it was like so good. Yeah, I have that K latte Keurig. Oh, okay. So a little foamer on the side. So I put the pumpkin spice oh. creamer in the foamer and have it smooth up. So it's like amazing. That's awesome. I have the poor person's Keurig. It's $40 on Amazon. <laughs> That's what I have. But hey, it works. And then I have a, a machine that you can make like lattes. So you do like ground coffee and um, you can do your, it steams your milk while it brews the coffee and then it drips the coffee into the steamed milk. It's pretty fancy. So I might have to try that. Maybe open up the K-cup and <laughs> pour a couple in there. Um Okay, enough about fall. Although I hope that if you listen to this podcast that you love fall because we love fall here and Halloween and all things spooky. Um, Yes, literally. But today as our 
inaugural case, we are going to talk about the missing Panama girls, which is a case that honestly let me led me to starting this podcast. I think like I just could not get enough information on this case. It was I was so fascinated by the possibilities of what could have happened to these two women. Um, and there is a lot to go in. So this podcast will might be a little long. So strap in or maybe we'll make it two parts. We'll see how long it is at the end. So um, spice latte while you listen to me. Yes. Grab your pumpkin spice latte. Maybe you have to sit in the pickup line for your kid's school if they're back in school. Um, maybe you just want to put your kids, you know, in front of the TV and then hide in a closet and listen to the podcast while you sip on your pumpkin spice latte. That's totally okay if you want to do that. Um, or maybe you just don't have kids and you have all the free time in the world, which is also okay. And I'm a little jealous, but here we go. Okay. So this story takes place April 1st, 2014 in Boquette, Panama. And the two women here are Chris Creamers, who was 21 and Lisanne Froon, who was 22. So both girls grew up in Amersfoort, which was a part of the province Utrecht in the Netherlands. Um, they were described as intelligent, happy, creative, and responsible girls. Both girls were known to keep diaries and would regularly write in them, giving them updates or, you know, writing updates from their travels and stuff like that. Chris also had a boyfriend, and I think that's important to mention as we get into the details um, of this story in a bit here. So a few weeks prior to leaving for Panama, Chris and Lisanne moved in together in a dorm room in Amersfoort. They worked together. They had saved up money for six months to be able to take this trip to Panama together. And they were just hoping to learn Spanish as well as uh, work at a, one of the local schools there that it was like a partner school with the area that they were living in, um, which was they were going to Boquette, Panama. So kind of like a mission trip slash learn Spanish trip and just kind of have fun. So Chris and Lisanne arrived in Panama for their six-week vacation trip on March 15th, 2014. They toured other parts of Panama for two weeks before arriving in the city of Boquette on March 29th. When they went to check in at the hotel, they were told that, or I'm sorry, when they went to go check in at the school that they were going to be working at, they were told that the school was actually not ready for them yet and that they needed to come back in a week. And obviously they had planned on like staying and working at the school. So um, without anywhere else to go, they reached out to a local woman who was a host family and they were able to stay with this woman whose name was Miriam Gurera, maybe. Um, and she agreed to house the girls for the remaining four weeks of their trips. She described the girls as polite and smart, but a little shy, which, you know, makes sense if you're in a new area, like meeting new people. In light of their newfound freedom for the week, they decided to explore the surrounding area. So photos from their social media show them out and about in Boquette and that they had planned a few sightseeing tours for the following day, which would have been April 2nd. It's also been reported that they were seen having brunch with two young Dutchmen before embarking on their trail. On April 1st, 2014, 2014, I can talk. Uh, they decided to set out on a hike on the Pianista Trail, which is a well-known walking path that brings you through the jungle and by waterfalls on your way to the summit of the Baru Volcano. This is where things kind of start to get inconsistent and weird um, as far as the timing goes. So a taxi is said to have picked them up and brought them to the start of the trail at 1.40 p.m. But according to 
the clock on one of their digital cameras, the photos were actually time-stamped as starting at 11 a.m. It is also said that they brought a dog with them, like a local dog um, on their hike. Some reports say it was the host dog, but then some reports say it was just kind of like a local dog that hung out at one of the restaurants there in Boquette. They were dressed for a short hike, uh, tank tops and shorts, and didn't really bring much with them other than a light backpack with a passport, some money, their photos, a separate digital camera, a water bottle, and um, it's reported by one of their brothers that they probably also brought a small amount of food, which I mean, maybe it's just me because I'm obsessed with food, but whenever I go out anywhere, like I always have snacks with me. So you'd have to assume that if they were planning a hiking trip, that they would have brought at least a little bit of food, right? Yeah, I mean, it's the smart thing to do. Right. Pretty intelligent girls, so. Exactly. So the hike was only a few hours, I would imagine they would have at least something. Yeah, that's what I think too. It's reported that the girls met some residents of Boquette at the start of the trail and that the residents actually warned them not to go on the trail alone. The girls last made contact with a family member at around 2 p.m. by phone when Chris messaged her boyfriend. So night falls and the dog returns to the city without the girls. The host family is alarmed, but figures perhaps the girls are staying elsewhere for the evening. And I have in parentheses on my notes here, I have which, why? Like, why would that be there? Like, you know, these girls are from out of the country. They're staying with you because they don't know anyone else. Why would you assume they were just chilling somewhere else for the night? (laughs) Yeah. So they actually wait to, actually, it's not even the host family that informs the police the next day when when the girls never come back. It's the guy that they had scheduled some of their tours with. He knew that they were staying at the host's house. So he came when when the girls never showed up for one of the uh, guides he was supposed to take them on. And when he realized that they hadn't been back for, you know, well over 24 hours. Um, he actually called the police to let them know that they were missing. So the tour that, oh, go ahead. Sorry, weren't they supposed to tour what the hike that they, or the trail that they hiked? Yes, that's literally what I was just about to say. Yep, the, the tour that they had scheduled was for the hike that the, the following day. So it's interesting that they decided to hike it and decided to hike it so deeply, like so far in on the trail when they were literally supposed to go with a guide the following day. Not even that. Like, they didn't alert the guy either that they decided to do it the day before. Right. Yeah, it's just very strange, especially the part where, like, the locals warned them not to go on the trail without knowing somebody. Or, or you know what I mean, without bringing, like, somebody who knew the trail. Like, that alone, for me, I would have been like, oh, okay, <laughs> I guess I'll just wait. And... I I read because at first I was like, maybe they were confused about which trail that they were actually hiking and which one they had asked the tour guide to help them with. But they could see like when they scheduled everything, they could see the names. I mean, they knew it's pretty obvious, you know, which one they were going to be doing. So that is very strange that they couldn't wait the day to go with the guide. Yeah. So on the morning of April 3rd, authorities are said to have conducted a search by foot and air with the help of local residents, which... At first, I'm like, okay, like, maybe local residents help search for the girls on foot. I mean, I guess you have no evidence to believe that something ill or, you know, malicious or whatever happened. But also, what if something did happen and now you have all these people trampling through evidence? Right. (laughs) Like, oh, my God. (laughs) Panama is, like, crazy. 
Um, three days into the search on April 6th, the parents of the girls flew into Panama to assist and offer a re reward for any information that led to the girls being found. Dutch detectives also arrived to aid in the search. They searched the forest for 10 days and found nothing. There was absolutely no trace of Chris or Lisanne. So now we're going to get into a timeline of events here and kind of work our way through once a piece of the girl's item, like one of their items was found. So about 10 weeks since the girls went missing, a local native woman who was working in her rice paddy field brought a blue backpack to police that she found on the bank of the river Culebra, excuse me, which was 17 kilometers or about 10 miles away from the city of Boquette and at least 18, or I'm sorry, at least eight kilometers and 14 walking hours away from where the girls were last seen. So that's a pretty huge distance, like 14 walking hours. The woman claimed that the backpack was not there the day before. The backpack contained two pairs of sunglasses, $83 in cash, Froon's passport, a water bottle, Froon's camera, two neatly folded bras, a memory card, um, it looks like maybe a, a cough drop or some sort of like throat lozenge and the woman's phones, all packed dry and in good condition. In fact, the backpack did not look like it had spent 70 plus days in a muddy, humid jungle, which when I read that, I was like, okay, somebody had to have dropped that backpack off there, right? Yeah, because the electronics all over would have been destroyed. Right. And this wasn't like a fancy waterproof backpack. It was just like a generic, like cheap just a backpack you take hiking to hold your stuff and you don't really care what happens to it. Like it was that kind of backpack. It is stated on some reports that as many as 34 different fingerprints were found, 13 on the backpack, 12 on the phones and the camera and six different ones on the woman's bras. Researchers could not or could determine that two of the fingerprints were from two unknown men and that one DNA sample contain, contained genetic material of two other unknown persons, one of which they believe was a male. Nevertheless, when presented to the woman that was leading the investigation, and her name is Betzeda Pity, I believe, these leads were never further investigated. So they're like, hey, we found all these fingerprints. And she's like, cool, let's do nothing. And they did nothing. So the phones were still powered, and they had a very interesting, kind of creepy call history. So let's go into the series of calls that took place. So the first call took place from Chris Kramer's iPhone at 4.39 p.m. on the day that they went out on the hike. So she dialed the Dutch emergency number, which also works in Panama. It's like their 911. It automatically, it would, if you had reception, would automatically connect you to the Panama emergency number. Like it would just reroute you to that one. But because of their location, there was no reception. At 4.51 p.m., a call was attempted from Froon's Galaxy phone, and then no other calls were made that first day, which, I mean, we'll, get, we'll go through all the history for the next couple of days. But that is interesting because I can tell you, like, if I was lost, I don't know, I feel like I would be making more than one call from each phone unless I was in a position where I couldn't. That or... I could see maybe trying to save the battery for the morning. Yeah, that's a good point. If you, Especially if you were just so turned around, you didn't know how far away you were, which again is something kind of we'll mention later on in this episode about 
it, it seems almost almost impossible that they would have gotten lost, but we'll touch on that. So on day two of their disappearance, which would have been um, Wednesday, April 2nd, calls were made at 6.58 a.m., 8.14 a.m., 10.53 a.m., and 1.56 p.m. Both phones were used alternatively. This is also the only day where one of their calls made a very short connection. During the first call attempt that morning at 6.58 a.m., Lisanne's Samsung phone managed to make a connection with the 911 um, number for about one to two seconds. Then the connection was broken off and the phone was switched off, as in like powered off. And that was approximately 36 seconds after she made that attempt for that call. So, you know, it's definitely likely that the call could have just been dropped because they're in a jungle, and that's why it only connected for just a couple seconds, and then she decided or, or was forced to power the phone off about, you know, 36 seconds later. So, about an hour later, Chris's iPhone attempted to make another call to emergency services. At this time, a screenshot was, was taken. Um, and we don't know if it was like an accidental screenshot, like she meant to lock her phone and accidentally took a screenshot, or if there was some significance to that. And then no other attempts were made on day two. So let's get into day three. Day three, 19 hours after the last call attempt from the previous day, Chris dialed 911 at around 9.30 a.m. And that was the last attempt to call from either girl's phone to call the 911 number. On the fourth day, April 4th, on Chris, only Chris's iPhone is used. It was switched on very shortly to look for a signal, I would assume. And then at 10.16 a.m., it was switched off. And again, at 1.42 p.m., no call was made. The phone was switched on, and then very quickly it was switched off. Lisanne's Samsung phone was not used at all that day. So now we're on to the fifth day. On April 5th, Lisanne's phone is switched on very early in the morning at 4.50 a.m. It then turned off immediately again. At 5 a.m., the phone was again switched on, but this would be the last time. The screen lit up for the last time, and then the battery just died. The Samsung phone was never used again. So that's interesting to note because when the phones were found, they had, like, power to them. So that would almost suggest that the phone would have been charged between this this time and when they found the phones. Or or when the phone like got shut off, there was just enough to turn it on when the investigators found it. But again, that was three weeks later. Yeah, I don't think there's any way that battery could have survived in that time frame. Yeah, no way. So at 10.50 a.m., Chris's iPhone was switched on after the correct PIN code was entered, and one minute later, it was switched off again. Then at 1.37 p.m., her iPhone was switched on again. However, an incorrect PIN code was entered, and the phone was not unlocked. From that moment onward, the iPhone from Chris was switched on and off, either without entering a PIN code or with entering the wrong PIN code. So whomever entered these incorrect PIN codes failed to activate the phone as in, like, get into it. But, I mean, phones can still make emergency phone calls without being, you know, putting your PIN in. So it's not exactly clear why the girls never attempted to make an emergency call while they were using this phone, if it was them. And it's not clear why exactly the iPhone stopped receiving the correct PIN code. Which, again, I feel like if Lisanne had Chris's phone and was just trying to log in, I mean, unless she, like, left Chris somewhere and she was, like, 
by herself and was trying to figure out how to put the pin in without Chris's input. I mean, at the very least, she could have made the emergency call. So it's interesting that that it was just these in incorrect pin attempts, but no call attempts. Yeah. And you got to remember, too, that these girls were very, like, family-oriented, so... I would imagine if they had the chance to, they could have recorded themselves saying goodbye. Or yeah, or just even like... That never occurred. No, no. And they never uh, they never attempted to make any phone calls um, to their family members. Like even on the first couple of days where they were trying to call 911, there was never any phone calls attempted to any family members, which again is odd because these girls kept in touch with their family members like daily. They would update them daily on little things, even... Even I remember there was one where a diary entry where she had mentioned that she talked to her parents and that she told them that she had a massage, but that she made note to mention that it was a female masseuse and not a male one. Just like little things like that. Like they were in constant contact with their family and giving them updates. So you would think even at the very least to like not have them worry, but to get help they would either attempt to make a phone call to the family member or try to send a text message and hope that if they got somewhere where signal was strong enough, even for a second, the text message would send. But none of that was ever like shown to be recorded at all in the phone, which I find really spooky and like eerie. And it, or, it, oh, go ahead. I said, or if they were really lost, you know, I would as a closure thing, record mm -hmm. myself saying goodbye Especially Definitely. if you are super close to your family or like with her boyfriend. Yeah. And if they had the chance to, I imagine that they would have. Yeah, I think so too. And even if they didn't want to use their cell phones because of the battery, they had a digital camera with them that was still um, fully powered when, like not fully, but still had a large amount of battery life. And we'll get into what's found on the digital camera in just a bit here, but yeah, like they definitely could have recorded. And it's even interesting because a lot of people who have been in situations where they thought that they might die and they had a phone or a camera with them will usually leave some sort of goodbye message. Um, or even if they're able to write something out, they will. And like I've seen a lot of shows on um, th that TV show, I Survived. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. Yeah. So like the ones where like the woman falls in the canyon or... Um, somebody gets like trapped in their vehicle during a snowstorm and stuff. I feel like both of those cases, they like recorded goodbye messages in some way, shape or form. So it is very odd that these two family oriented women did not attempt at all to contact their family or to give their family some sort of closure or, or even just to document their journey. Like for, for people who constantly wrote in their diaries and, you know, like made a point to write down or post on social media, like different updates about themselves and their day and their location. I do find it a bit odd that they wouldn't at least turn the camera on and be like, Hey, this is day three. We've been stuck out on the pianista trail and this jungle for three days or something like that. And, and the fact that that didn't happen makes it, makes me believe that, you know, maybe they were not alone on that trail. Yeah, I don't believe that they were. So let's go to the sixth day. April 6th, Chris's iPhone was switched on at 10.26 a.m. The PIN code was again entered incorrectly. One minute later, the phone was turned off. 
Then at 1.37 a.m., the iPhone was switched on once more. Again, a PIN code was entered incorrectly, and a minute later, the phone was switched off again. Between the 7th and the 10th day, Chris's iPhone was not successfully given the correct PIN again. Despite the girls being awake and active seemingly on the night of April 8th, when around 90 nighttime photos were made by someone on Froon's digital camera, According to some sources, no less than 77 attempts to get into this phone were made. However, during these four days, between the 7th and the 10th of April, some claim that no less than 77 wrong PIN codes were also entered. So, like, it's not just someone tried to, like, slide up, or I guess iPhones, they might be different where you have to enter the PIN code to get in. Like, I know with my um, note, you have to like slide up a little thing on the screen or like tap the screen to get to the pin code and then you enter that and then you get into the phone. So I don't know if Apple is a little bit different. You know, with Justin's iPhone, he does the like finger recognition, the fingerprint. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work, then it takes you to the passcode. But you could still um, either use the camera without the passcode or you can also call 911. Oh, you can use the camera without the passcode? That's how my Galaxy is, too. Oh. Like, if you go to the home screen, it, on the bottom, it has my, um, like, the green phone call and the red camera. And you can just swipe the red camera up, and you can take photos or record. So, I don't know phones in 2014 if they could do that, but. Yeah. Galaxy. I mean, you'd have to assume, right? Maybe. Yeah. That's crazy. I'm looking at mine too, and you're right. Mine does have the the little phone screen and the camera, which is very interesting. Um, So either way, somebody tried to get into this phone at least 77 times, and they could not get into it. On April 11th, the iPhone was turned on at 10.51 a.m., and then it was turned off for the last time a little over an hour later at 11.56 a.m., So for me, that's the longest that the phone has been on other than the first day. So that to me almost makes it seem like somebody was trying to drain the battery or maybe, maybe they, maybe the girls turned it on to check for a signal and then they forgot to turn it off, um, which seems kind of unlikely because, you know, like we mentioned before, they're both intelligent girls. If you are trying to save your battery, I feel like the first thing you would do after you check for a signal would be to immediately turn the phone off and you would like have that on the forefront of your mind. So that's a little strange. (laughs) That is true. So let's get into the digital camera and the creepy photos that were found on this digital camera. So Lasanne's digital camera was found in good working condition, just like everything else in the backpack. And it had, like I mentioned before, plenty of battery power left. The photos that were published looked sharp and fine. So it looked like the camera was perfectly working, no issues at all. This camera, um, unfortunately, didn't have a GPS location. I don't think that was like a standard thing on cameras back in like 2013, 2014. So investigators, investigators could only establish or guess the location of the photos based on the surroundings that were visible in the pictures. So the first photos showed the girls in good spirits on April 1st, so the day that they went out on the hike the first day, confirming that the women had taken the Pianista Trail and wandered into some wilderness hours before their first attempt to call 911, and there was no signs of anything unusual. The girls took pictures of each other, the weather looked good, it was sunny and no rain, um, which is interesting because 
in some sets of the photos that I saw, the from the angle that the, the picture was taken, the skies are blue. And then in some other pictures that I saw, the angle looks like it should be the same angle, but the sky behind one of the girls is like gray with clouds. And I thought that was a little weird because the pictures were taken sometimes seconds or just a few minutes apart. And you would think that it would take more than, you know, 60 to 90 seconds for gray skies to completely take over blue skies. So there's been some weird theories that maybe whoever did this edited the pictures somehow, or maybe the police edited the pictures. Again, these are just theories. I'm not trying to pin anything on anyone, but so don't come after us. <laughs> but, but it is odd that when you put these two pictures side by side and they were taken not that far apart and the sky is completely different in the background. The first set of photos showed the girls walking up the trail um, and they believe that to be the start of the girls' journey. And I actually found a blog that was written by a guy who has hiked that same trail and this is kind of how he described it. So he said, the trail can be broken up into three sections. In the first 45 minutes, you will walk through an open area or pasture land with gorgeous views of the surrounding mountains and downtown Boquette. Second, you enter a dense jungle surrounded by lush vegetation, birds, and insects, which I read that and I was like, no, thank you. In here, you will walk for about one and a half hours and enter the cloud forest where it is very humid and magical as you are literally walking in the clouds. Finally, after another 30 minutes climbing the mountain, you will reach the top and you will fully be enveloped in the cloud forest. So... I mean, it sounds like it's a pretty in intense hike. You do have to go through like different sections of it. And in the pictures, you can see where the girls walk through the open area. You can see where they enter the, the dense kind of jungle. There's vegetation all around them. And then you can see where they get to the top. Well, not maybe not the top, but at least like the top of a peak where there's clouds. Uh, apparently there's some clouds and some picks and some not, but they have like a good view of the land around them. So we don't know what exactly happens from that point of them reaching the peak to where they go next. All we have is a weird set of pictures, which we'll get into in just a second. So the next set of photos on the girls' cameras established precisely that they were at a place called El Mirador, which means um, a lookout on the Pianista Trail, and they were at the summit of the Continental Divide. And we'll post, when I post... Um, the link for this podcast on our social media. We'll post some pictures and there's a great picture that kind of names where each of these stops are on the trail and um, kind of gives you like a good big, big picture layout. Normally people are recommended to turn back once they reach the summit, especially if they're not experienced hikers um, and experienced with this trail in particular, or they don't have a guide. It's recommended that they turn around. But based on the photos on the girls' camera, it appears that the girls actually went deeper on the trail and into the forest. One of the last photos shows the girl about one hour past the summit, continuing away from Boquette. So overall, 30 photos were taken that first day, with the last one being taken at around 2 p.m. So the next set of photos were taken seven days later, which again is really creepy and like unsettling and eerie, on April 8th. So over 90 images were taken between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. On average, a photo every two minutes was taken that night. So again, this is between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m., very early in the morning. Um, some of the photos show complete darkness. Some show what seems to be like random desert landscape. 
And then there were some photos that showed like objects and they were, they're strange ob objects. Like in one photo, it showed a red plastic bag, like pieces of a red plastic bag attached to like some small sticks. Um, some photos also showed items that were scattered on a rock and it's kind of hard to tell what the items are, but it kind of looked like maybe toilet paper, a mirror, and like some sort of sh like bag strap. And then perhaps the most eerie photo um, is the one that shows, appears to show the back of Chris's head. And some people have said that they believe it's her showing that she has a head injury or that somebody's taking a picture of her head, but I can't really tell if there's an injury or not. All you can see is like her, her hair. Basically, you can tell that it's a picture of her head from the back, but you can't really tell anything else. And I feel like that's just a couple different things. Like I feel if they were trying to use the flash for some light, that'd be like a really weird way to, to light your path <laughs> because A, why would these girls be hiking in the middle of the night in the dark, you know, to like try to figure out where they are and get out? And B, like it would be super disorienting for it to be pitch black and then they would just be randomly snapping flash photos, right? Yeah, not only that, it's super weird that, you know, whatever, maybe it was content in their bag or what have you, but they would be taking pictures of stuff. Yeah. Brown. And you mentioned the red plastic bag and it's kind of weird because when I was doing some research on this case, it showed that. Um, there was a red plastic bag in the girls' room before they went on their hiking trip. It was um, at their hostess bedroom oh. they're staying in. Yeah. It looked like it was the same material that was on the ground in those pictures, the night Whoa. pictures. I didn't realize that. I didn't read that. Wow, that's crazy. And it's also interesting, just speaking on the ho from the host perspective, that there wasn't anything found, at least in their bag. And maybe they had it in their person or, or um, like in a pocket in their jeans, like a host key or the key to get back to the place and like to unlock their door because they had like a separate area where they kind of lived at, like a separate room they could enter through. And there was nothing found like a key to get in or anything like that. And I, th I thought that was super strange because you would think that they would have something like that on them. Yeah. And it's interesting because some of the theories I read about the the plastic bag on the sticks was like maybe they were going to use it to signal someone. But I mean, these are like twigs. It's not like they like grabbed a branch off a tree and like put a whole, you know, plastic bag on it that was red. They literally, it was twigs with like little chunks of the bag on there. So I don't know who the heck they would be signaling. <laughs> but it definitely wouldn't be anybody from the air because it was so small. And then if you look at some of the pictures, some people try to make out that there's like hidden numbers or like hidden shadows of people or something. But I personally did not see any of that. Um, I just saw what was like on the, on the rock that they took a picture of and it was like this random stuff and then like shadows and desert landscape or not shadows, but like desert landscape and nighttime. Like they would it almost look like they'd, pointed the camera to the sky and like took a picture of it <laughs> like it was very strange like almost like somebody who had never used a camera before was using it yeah which obviously these girls on um, day one they have been using the camera so yeah exactly so they they know how to use it so 
we're going to jump forward now to where um, actually there are some remains that are found. So the discovery of the backpack, again, that was 10 weeks after they had initially gone missing. It sparked a renewed interest in the case, and Panama police started their search efforts again near where the backpack was found. With the help of the local Native people, remains were actually found from both girls, which, gotta, mention, gotta say, that's a little bit odd, I think, that all of a sudden they involved the local tribes people, and now remains are found. Yeah. A little spooky. My own theory on that, but... Okay. Yeah. We'll touch into that in just a second here. So also found with the remains were a pair of jean shorts and two different shoes that were along the river Rio Culebrera, or I'm sorry, Culebra, shortly before June 19th, 2014. The jean shorts were said to have been found on top of a rock on the opposite bank of this Culebra River, at least eight walking hours away from Boquette and several kilometers away from where Froon's backpack had been discovered. Now, some story or some reports I saw said that the jeans were found floating on top of the river, and some I saw the jeans were folded neatly on a rock. Um, it's kind of interesting that there are many different stories and that there isn't just one true story. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that the Panama police maybe were not giving this 100% of their attention, which... I know we kind of talked about before the recording of this podcast, the fact that maybe they didn't want to freak people out because they're a country that relies heavily on tourism as one of their major streams of income. And when you have two white young women that go missing and then their remains are found and the, we'll get into the details of the remains, how they were found. It's not like a body that was like fully found, you know, it's kind of weird how, how they were found. It's just interesting that there seems to be many stories. I thought it's interesting because, you know, I've seen theories of people saying, well, well, maybe they were eaten, but there were no tooth marks on the bones and their jeans or their clothes weren't ripped up. No. There's yes. no way an animal could, you know, eat them particularly in that way because no evidence was found of that. Exactly. So I think this is a great place to pause the story. Um, You can feel free to head over to our social media pages and check out the photos that we've posted for this case because they're pretty intense. And then when you're ready, you can head on over to episode two, which is part two of the Panama Girls story. Thank you so much for listening, you guys.